Greetings, everybody. This is Christopher Messina coming at you from the Messy Time Studios in another delightful post-Hurricane Ian Florida afternoon, the 14th of October, 2022. Joined again, transatlantically, by my friend Craig Wright, who is coming to us from London. Craig, how are you? I'm doing very well. Yourself? Fantastic. Fantastic. we got midterm elections coming in the United States, which is going to determine whether we plunge into a Marxist hell or we actually get gridlock on the way towards rationality. Not that I'm loading my opinion ahead of time. Um, I thought rationality died in the U.S. like uh, 30 years ago. It's 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 on life support, and it's got a faint heartbeat. And those of us trying to resuscitate it are doing our all to shock the system. But I could see why you would mm. think it had died. <laughs> Getting that way. I mean, most people don't even know the difference between a democracy and a republic anymore. And... Um, this is the foundation of America. I mean, uh, I, I talk about things like, uh, have you read Madison and number 10? And uh, I, I, I'm yet to find many young Americans who actually even know who Madison is. Uh, if they do, it's generally something like, oh, wasn't he that guy in Hamilton? <laughs> Which, you know what? I'll take it. If that's a start, <laughs> I'll take it. If you can then go Google from there. Um, I had a yeah. phenomenal conversation with somebody the other day who was yelling about kind of the Second Amendment and anti-gun owners in, in the States love to talk about, well, the Second Amendment was written, you know, when when uh, the, the, the people own muskets. I said, ah, you got it wrong. As Madison once again pointed out, the Kentucky Long Rifle was a superior weapon to the British musket, and that's why we won the mm -hmm. war. And we won the war with privately owned weapons. So in Madison, well, we always wanted that the population to be better armed. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of logistics as well. I mean, the British had to uh, sort of move things a little bit further than you guys. Look, not my fault. I didn't put the ocean there. Blame God. So, uh, uh, but I, one thing I, I was maybe they should build a bridge. <laughs> I'm sure that would work really well. Mm. I can't see any problem with that. None. No. None. Especially during hurricane season. Have one of those floating bridges, pontoon well, ones, right across. Exactly. So you, you can experience seasickness in your car. Mm. What an exciting innovation. Maybe the, <laughs> the, the road could connect to Iceland, to Greenland, to mm. Nova Scotia, and down to New York. <clears throat> but one of the things I was thinking about the other day, because I got into this discussion with somebody about um, well, levels of relative taxation, you know, social safety nets and the like, and sort of sort of kind of what they were talking about is kind of permissible economic activity. And I realized that without potentially without even meaning to, they were harking back to a, to a kind of argument that we've been having in Western civilization for going on 2000 years now, right? About things like, is it right to charge interest? If there is, is there a just level of interest or not a just level of interest? All those kinds of things. And I know that you had been looking into a bit of this in relation to Luther and Aquinas. And I was kind of curious as to your thoughts. Mm. Yeah, I actually uh, just completed my um, uh, dissertation on the topic, uh, which was uh, in late medieval history, um, studying the German principalities. Uh, that was over at uh, University of Birmingham in, uh, in the UK here. Um, very uh, interesting topic, and I'm going to pronounce it utterly wrong because uh, I have no German skills whatsoever. Ah. Uh, in, uh, pronouncing German for me is, well, terrible. Um, but Zinderfurkel, yeah, uh, yeah, I can't even say it properly. When it's got little uh, dots above them, I, 
screw it up totally. Right. I can write it. Every, every good 1980s heavy metal band did. They needed an umlaut to appear <laughs> serious. <laughs> I know. Uh, but anyway, in, in um, uh, Zindok, when I've not, I'll type it in the, um, the thing and you can try and pronounce it a little bit. Um, <laughs> the concept was creating a um, sort of way around interest by having repayment schedules that uh, had you buy and sell everything back. So like Islamic law, uh, people find a way yep. so there's always contracts will always uh, exist it just makes life a little bit harder when you have to have these silly con uh, constructs to yep. do what everyone does anyway well it's, it's interesting because I, I encountered this lux having, having done quite a bit of uh, sharia finance and having helped advise two exchanges in the middle east on kind of products mm. that might look like um a rate of return that mm. mimicked mimicked interest the thing that I've always found very helpful in kind of explaining, especially to Westerners, about why um, Sharia structures exist and why, uh, you know, in, in Arabic it's riba, in, in Hebrew it's ribit, right? Uh, remarkably enough, this idea of increase without, with in increase without taking into account God's will, right? So mm. by which they mean there's no problem whatsoever in investing in, mm. in, in, a, in, in someone's project and earning a profit from it. But what they find utterly immoral is if, say, I lend you money to open up a, a wheat mill and you earn just enough to pay the interest to me while you and your children are starving, that's clearly mm. immoral, right? I have, I have demanded that you provide to me a return even though the business itself has not flourished. Well, there's also other interesting Christian arguments, for instance, uh, parable of the talents. Mm. Uh, so raising money and have you put the money to work? So it depends on how you do it. And the difference in um, uh, early Christian and also current Islamic law uh, wasn't the sort of notion of interest, uh, more compound interest, but the the notion of not having uh, a share of the risk if you're right. getting the profit. I mean, yes, you're uh, risking your money, but then you... Uh, basically back then own the person and have them as a serf so because of that it's the concept of integrating risk so i've, I've typed the name if you want to try and uh, pronounce it uh, oh. there's supposed to be a couple little um, uh, dots over the oh, oh Zinskaff. Uh, there <laughs> you go that, that'll do i would come closest there my German friends would be angry, but I think that's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and um, there's other things like the Einwitschern. Um, uh, um, I can type all these things in my. But my what was funny about it is, I think more broadly, is that what you point to is much like water flowing in mm. Bucherland, right? As, as there's uh, kind of the way water flows around a rock. Right, much the way drug mm. prohibition and alcohol prohibition only gave us things like President mm. Kennedy. Um, yeah. You, you, if there's going to be sort of a a, a natural economic sensibility for, for people trying to stop it, is only going to either mm. involve the community ignoring the prohibitions, as yeah. they do, right, or uh, you're going to come up with these like tortured workarounds, right, and so. Mm. There's 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 that same sort of concept in current Islamic uh, finance where you know I pre-agree again a, re, a a buyback schedule that remarkably mm. enough when you add it up it begins to look a lot like eight percent interest, right? But it's structured such that 
without being facetious and without being you know offensive to to religious sensibilities it actually is structured in a way that both parties are exposed to that equity risk they're exposed to god's will so if the ship sinks and your gold bar goes down there's no concept of insurance that somebody else has to give you a different gold bar because you're sunk mm. to the bottom of the ocean you're more than welcome to exactly. go get it yeah it's right there right there <laughs> we know exactly, it's right there i know exactly where the ship went down yeah. Um, I mean, uh, but it, it's in, interesting also in some of the other ways around it. I mean, uh, Philip uh, Melanchthon, uh, my pronunciation of these things that I type is terrible, uh, came up with the idea that uh, if we ignore half of the Mosaic laws in, in the Judaic, why do we take this one? Like we're sitting there going, Deuteronomy says, but then we're going, but we eat bacon, we mix our cloth, we do all these other fun things that um, strict uh, ascetic Jews aren't allowed to do. Right. And then we go, oh, but this one will enforce. And his argument was, if we ignore all these other ones, why are we picking on this one and saying that would be good to do? And, and, and a good uh, rabbinical court's answer would be much like in modern contractual law where mm -hmm. you've got 78 clauses and one of them will say, in the event that any one of these clauses turns out not to be... <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that does not mean the others are also there being correct. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a it's a good question. And the, the the so so the prohibition against rebits in 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 the five books of Moses comes up I think four different times, mm. um, and they are all about uh, brother to brother, community to community, mm. Jew to Jew. You're not allowed to charge interest. Nothing yeah, against everyone else. Mm. Right. There's nothing. There's nothing wrong about about entering into interest bearing transactions either way, borrower or lender with others outside the community. Yeah. Um, and the idea being there, as most of the kind of ancient scholars would say, was that, that you're not supposed to um, profit off family. Right? That's the idea. Mm -hmm. is that if you're looking at the Jewish tribes as family, and similarly, uh, that that caused you know the, the my people enormous amount of misery in the Middle Ages because the uh, Christian lords used the Jews as tax collectors, and yeah, and occasionally the kicked them out and took them back and kicked them out and yep. basically took all their money every now and again. Um, but it's also interesting in some of the other ways that people looked at this. Uh, one of the big changes that Luther started making wasn't that uh, was moving away from banning, but trying to convince the people who had been taking loans that these are a bad idea and um, instructing people, giving them a little bit of financial knowledge. Um, I, I find it interesting that over time, Luther slowly started developing um, sort of some economic sense because very a lot slowly. of the princes, <laughs> yeah, very slowly, but he was dealing with a lot of princes and he started very one way and slowly moved across as all these people started talking to him about trade and finance. And um, he understood having to get money himself to pay his new churches that he was setting up. And suddenly, oh, well, now I'm starting to understand suddenly commerce money matters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now that I'm not living in this little tiny cell and not buying and selling anything and getting on my food for free, um, yes, it might be interesting to learn about this money thing. It's amazing how incentives change when your circumstances change. <clears throat> but, you know, what I, what I find fascinating, some of the echoes of, of that research and about changing attitudes does is is the you know westerners for so long have have assumed in our actions that the economy is paramount right that mm. that morality itself is not paramount and then but they encounter 
we encounter strict strains within our own tradition where people are like, but I don't get it. You, you know, people are hungry on the streets. Don't talk to me about the efficient markets hypothesis. And I kind of get that point too, right? I mean, there's there's nothing wrong mm. with that that perspective. But it came out, a, a great example, I think, which highlights this was kind of a complete misunderstanding of how uh, uh, rights and responsibilities of capitalism work. It was during the 0708 uh, mm. hearings into the financial collapse, which, of course, were caused by bad U.S. government housing policy. But the government, of mm. course, instantly went into overdrive to try to tell everyone else that it was greedy bankers and not their own stupid policy. Well, uh, I mean... It, it's not fair unless people uh, who basically from any area can get a loan without any credit reference. I oh, mean, yeah, better than that. Because it was your gift of cash because there's no chance they're ever hmm. going to pay it back. I mean, well, <laughs> houses only just go up. So why not give people a 110% loan? Because why not? You're right. Why? I mean, why not? It sounds like a great idea because in 30 years' time, it will be worth 111%. So they've made 1%. Exactly. After all that money they paid him. And you were channeling Barney Frank perfectly. And mm. he's not even dead. That's exactly right. <laughs> During the hearings, it's one of the most magical moments. You know, as I said, my entire life, one of my goals is to never appear before Congress. Um, and they're the heads of most of the major banks are sitting there. Of course, they're there for a public flogging. There's no... The, the the idiots they're talking to, the banking, the banking and finance panel, the House of Representatives... Right. They're all equally unqualified to ask anyone about anything. But there they are. And so <clears throat> one of the um, congressional representatives looks at the bankers and say, I find it unconscionable, basically, that when you are trading as a market maker, when you're trading with with counterparties, that you don't act in their fiduciary interest. Right. And, and of course, your head's exploding. Mm. If I were acting in their fiduciary interest, I would give them everything for free. That's not that's not trading. That's not that's not that's asset management. And and watching the faces of the bankers who are like, wow, this woman's an idiot. And yet I yeah. have to answer well, this question. And yet they <laughs> removed all the restrictions because of democratizing finance to allow the people who have got no clue to basically stick their pension into a gambling fund yep. and lose it all. And then right. go, well, it's not fair that they lost it. Well, really? <laughs> I mean, oh, GameStop will go up because uh, bricks and mortar stores are the thing. I mean, and you ask these people, do you actually go into one? No, but but I support it because I want it to be there. Right. I, I want Blockbuster back. Woo. Right. If and all it, of us it, get on Twitter and hit like enough. And a bunch of stupid work. idiots on Reddit who are all 19 and high as a kite have been pumping up GameStop. And one of them got really rich and everyone else lost the money, a lot of money. Yeah. An argument for greater fools and 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 oh, well, I remember a, um, a perfect example. There were two articles, one one week after the other, um, and the same person was interviewed. And this person was uh, saying how they're up um, like a million pounds here in Britain. Uh, it's wonderful. That, I mean, that they, they were only they weren't uh, rich, but they've taken a mortgage out and put it on all this stuff and said, uh, "This is great." The week later, they lost everything and the shorts were closed. Ooh. And um, they're sitting there going, it's not fair. The government should have stopped this. Not fair. <laughs> That's beautiful. Uh, I mean, like in the first article, they said, why don't you close out? Oh, because there's more money to be made. So greed. Greed. Greed's a classic. Greed's mm. a classic. Um, 
And one of the things, and he, here's how I've, I've been kind of looking at this in terms of a lot of the developments that are happening um, you know, along sort of enabling technologies, mm. you know, stuff that you're mildly familiar with, like Bitcoin, stuff like that. Um, the, the promise of kind of enabling technologies that will allow kind of smoother transactions, all that, all that wonderful stuff, for so many years was eclipsed by people basically playing with this random casino of, of cryptocurrencies, which as you pointed out, are neither currencies nor crypto. Um, and, and a lot of that's just going to come crashing down to earth. And I predict sooner rather than later. I mean, will we, will it be like the crash of 2001 in the dot-com era mm -hmm. where the stupidity gets flushed out and real business models are now enabled, or is it going to cause so much damage that a lot of the good stuff will be tossed out along with the bad stuff. Uh, the good stuff will just be bought up. Um, I mean, it'll just end up being sucked up by other companies like all these other things that occurred in the past. Um, so it'll take a little bit and everyone will panic for a while, but yeah, everything will be fine. I don't know if you remember, but um, travel.com went bust um, and, and then they got remodeled. Uh, but before that, there was a company called dogfood.com. Mm. And at one stage, they were actually trading for um, uh, more than Amazon. <laughs> oh, it's dog food. Everyone loves dog food. Well, you realize <laughs> they never actually sold anything. <laughs> they collected users and they made promises. <clears throat> and, uh, and then they ran out of money. Right. Fair and, enough. I mean, they thought they'd just keep raising more and more on the market. And of course, well... They didn't use it to build a business. No. They used it to put back into marketing because if we get more consumers that actually aren't consuming, one day we'll have them consume something because right. obviously the fact that they've signed up and give us their email and been uh, agreed means that, well, eventually they're going to buy lots of stuff. I mean, Maybe they haven't actually food. ever bought any stuff. But <laughs> one day they will because we have their email and we're going to spam them until they buy something. Yep. Remember, remember one of the clicks to eyeballs. I never forget that that was uh, mm. that was the moment. Well, there were so many moments during that period. It's like 1999 or so <clears throat> when I saw a a kind of Morgan Stanley or Goldman Sachs research report that came out, and one of the metrics they were using was like about clicks to eyeballs or something. I was like. This was like Joe Kennedy saying, I pulled my money out of the stock market when my shoe shine boys started giving me stock tips. Right? <laughs> Absolute yeah. madness. You know, we're losing a nickel on every trade, but we'll make it up in volume. Um, mm -hmm. But the, the, the analog today, for example, like here's a concrete one. Um, so we're doing, you know, one of my real world physical mining companies, um, mm. they make stuff, is issuing uh, a, kind of a, a bundle of, of certificates around buying commodities. Mm. And we just, I decided to put it in an NFT structure, mainly because that's just a convenient carrying mechanism in order to, to transact, right? So it just, to me, that was all it was. The yeah. number of investors we spoke with, like, oh, I don't touch NFTs. And I thought, well, this is fascinating because, so that's like saying, well, Enron went bankrupt, so I don't touch equities, right? But the idea of, I find it so poisonous, bear with me in this market, that what is just basically a neutral, a value neutral packaging structure in and of itself has become associated with pictures of drunk monkeys that idiot celebrities bought for too much money and therefore the well, is stupid now i mean can we get past that infection so people can look at this and say no this is just another rational way to 
kind of put something together. Hmm. Well, yes, but people aren't capable um, in this field yet and the tools aren't there. Now, most of these developers are very simple API devs. So they're not like C or um, like a complex language. So if they can't plug and play and drop it into things and just uh, draw the program, they can't. Now, the reason I'm saying that is if you actually think about it for a moment, um, I mean, and people will say, I didn't invent this, but this time I patented it. And the patent is February 2016. So you can go, oh, well, in 2017, Vitalik came up with that. Well, yeah, but that's 19 months after my patent. So guess which one came first? Um, the concept here, though, wasn't the whole, like, put it on um, IPFS and everyone can take it. It was actually using a combination of encryption algorithms, like broadcast encryption and revocable encryption, uh, to provably demonstrate ownership by a single person what it'll take time to do but what we want to eventually have is to have the physical world uh, mirrored in the cyber world sure. so that we can literally create individual um, items that you own i mean that has promise yep. if you think about it even from uh, not just owning books and things from national security points of view imagine now that i have a document on my computer that you cannot take, um, like a top secret document, you cannot take and copy without removing it from the other computer. And now add multiple layers of signatures, like for this to go, two generals need to sign off. You wouldn't have a certain person living in Russia um, getting his Russian citizenship. Uh, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, and th those are the technical considerations. So I, I mm. kind of start these chats with like assuming that the technical considerations are will be met because it's just it's 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 hard work. It's not brain surgery that can that can get done. The mm. from a from an implementation perspective, I look at you know having worked in the capital markets for years, most bond traders, equities traders, commodities traders. They have absolutely zero idea how to code. They don't have to. The code doesn't matter, right? They, they they're assuming that you know guys in the back room have that done. So you know it's it's more of the fundamental trust mm. in a market that this structure and this idea will will work. Um, I think that that is what is people are getting closer and closer to because mm. for those people who have not spent any time looking at broadly speaking blockchain enabled markets. Their 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 overall perception is what they see in the news, which is, wow, smart guy, you know, smart guy X who knows a lot. No matter how smart guy X really is smart, just had 180 million dollars stolen from him overnight by a script kitty in Hong Kong, right? Mm. So, if that's true, I'm not touching this. Jesus, that sounds like a nightmare. So things where there are more adult controls, is revocability, all, all the sorts of things that are being announced. That is going to, I believe, move this just towards a more mature market because people will trust the protocols that exist. They will understand them, and they'll be able to use them without any reference whatsoever to you know silly idiot coin that was created a few years ago. Well, that's why we've uh, recently released what we uh, like the notary tool and the recovery system that we've built in. I mean, one, um, the idea of you can't recover something from blockchain is wrong because it's uh, not encrypted. But secondly, uh, it gets rid of all these problems. So the anarchists out there will go, oh, you can't trust courts. But I mean, courts are actually quite decentralized. I actually 
not quite sure. I think we're up to 186 countries last time I checked, but every time I blink, there seems to be some little country splitting off now. Um, South Florida, we're going. We've had it. Yeah. I, I, well, Texas is going to go to one of these days. Um, <laughs> And the Californians are already a bit weird. Um, <laughs> but, exactly. uh, I mean, really? You you think 186 countries getting together and agreeing anything's ever going to work? I mean, really, you think um, if anything? I mean, go into the UN and let's see. We'll get the Chinese, the Russians, the Koreans, the Americans, the Brits, and the French all on a table and see if we can get an agreement. And the British will say something and the French will go, denied. But I haven't exactly. finished yet. <laughs> Even if it was a resolution extolling the virtues of French regional cheese. <laughs> exactly. By definition, no, they're going to object. <laughs> Why are you only doing regional cheese? All French cheese is better. <laughs> exactly. And um, you didn't say it in French. <laughs> oh, God. I, lo I love that, especially, especially in Montreal. They're even crazier about that in Montreal than they are in Paris. Um, no, just so there, actually, just, just um, to be clear, what you said, when you were working on that, was that sort of a development that, at Enchain that you're talking about? Around yeah, Enchain, uh, yeah. now released by Bitcoin Association. So, right. um, and, and how close um, that is the, the, for, the, for my listeners who tried to pay attention to this, right? The difference mm. in BTC, which is what they see as Bitcoin trolling across CNN occasionally, mm. and BSV, which you know they're calling Bitcoin's supposed to be vision. I mean, are those? Is there is there a point at which those will collapse into into one? There will be an argument. No, they, they that. don't. They don't collapse, but there's already an argument. I mean, I'm, I'm actually quite surprised because uh, we've already um, issued and. Um, got acknowledgement of service and all that sort of stuff for like coinbase for instance um no one's talking about these things so but it's actually a multi um multi tens of uh, well hundred billion dollar lawsuit against coinbase hmm. and um you'd think with the whole you know um, being a listed company they might tell their their um, investors um hmm. yet crickets out there right at the moment so they literally have a uh, a lawsuit that is um, potentially bigger than the whole value of their company and their customer assets combined and being an exchange, all their customers will lose their money mm. and nothing. They haven't told them that they received it. They haven't told them that they're not challenging jurisdiction and they're not. Um, it's just funny. It's, I mean, it's like they don't really care about their consumers. That's fascinating. So what, what's the lawsuit about? Uh, it's public. So uh, I mean, passing off database rights, all those sort of things. Um, so people don't seem to understand. They run around going, Bitcoin's open source. Uh, but in Europe, we've got this thing called database rights, which mm. is an extension of copyright. And um, the distributed ledger, um, well, was never put under the MIT license. So people don't realize that. That's interesting. So, so people I'm a sneaky bastard. That, I, that's news to me. So that's fascinating. So the whole idea is sort of a distributed ledger system, which most people would assume is kind of an, op an open source idea under a MIT Open Commons license, whatever it is, is not. Well, the software is, but that's where they go wrong. They said they're going, the white paper's under MIT, but it's not. See, I stuck the license, and I mean, uh, this is why I had two different folders. So the white paper was in the research folder and the code was in the code folder and the license was put on the uh, code folder. 
and they don't seem to understand that it doesn't jump across. You actually, so, huh. what can we say? Uh, is there, is there, as that proceeds along, I and mean, eventually as a public company, we'll have to report mm. that. Are there, is there a trial date set or anything for that? Or is it kind of... Oh, no. I mean, these things take forever, you know. I mean, probably <laughs> 24. Um, uh, but I'm busy anyway, so... Fair enough. Fair enough. I'll be I, busy gather, I gather, just by chance, I see that today's N-Shane's happy seventh birthday. Is that correct? Is there, uh, is there cake yeah, in the about lobby? that. What's that? Uh, yeah, about that. <laughs> Excellent. And what, what are the biggest uh, what are the biggest innovations? Like, what are you guys working on that's that's sort of most differentiated from other folks who are kind of in in the blockchain space, if you will? Oh, uh, I mean, apart from all the other sort of ideas about bringing uh, the world into the sort of uh, physical and, and digital merged, uh, it's really about scaling. So I've got some very aggressive targets that. Um, We'll make sure everyone never sleeps ever again at Enchain and uh, has to work their butt <laughs> off. And, and um, their wives and, and spouses and significant others sort of forget what they look like and their children go, where's daddy? Um, but um, that's, that's it. That's, that that's sounds normal. delightful. So you've read all the, all the modernist work-life balance HR books, clearly. <laughs> oh, it's, it's totally balanced. Um, <laughs> Fair. You've worked your life. Fair yeah, enough. That's my Good. opinion. Yeah, work all your life. Um, like anyway, so um, it, scaling is the biggest one. I mean, um, uh, I want to, with the release of Terrano that's coming out, get to uh, over a million transactions a second um, uh, on a live, non-scalable blockchain thing, like people say. Uh, and then by the end of this decade, um, get to one and then 10 billion transactions a second. Then I don't care about scaling anymore. <laughs> and then it's just a tool um, upon which people can build all sorts of different yeah. applications. And um, that level of scaling plus uh, around a thousandth of a cent per transaction for a normal uh, thing. And then Visa, MasterCard, they'll be using it. Why? Because it's cheaper than anything they can do. Sure. Um, we'll probably have Amazon just doing it because, well, it'll be cheaper. Eventually, every uh, bank and uh, everything like that, if it's a... Um, sort of 10,000th of their current transaction costs. I mean, they're going to have to migrate. Yeah. It won't be Swift. It'll be something else. Um, and of course, I mean, shares, I mean, they're horrendous. You know that. Yeah. Uh, the whole uh, sort of So we can replace a lot shares. of the sort of boring financial plumbing that makes the whole system mm. work that is that is invisible to most people, right? They've got no clue whether they're buying yeah. stocks or swiping their MasterCard at, you know, an Outback Steakhouse. They just have mm. no idea of the complex plumbing that goes into moving data yeah. and money around. And so by having a system yeah, exactly. like this with basically frictionless transactions, mm. you're just wringing a lot of the inefficiencies and rent seeking out of the system. Mm. And accruing yeah, a little I mean, bit of that rent seeking back to end chain, I assume. <laughs> well, that's not rent seeking. That's actually developing something. I mean, um, I mean, there's a big difference between buying someone else's patents and trolling on them and actually inventing something. There is. And again, and that, uh, interestingly, Wright Brothers versus Kurt, uh, Curtis, which was uh, Wright Brothers invented um, the airplane and all the bits. And then uh, Curtis came along and said, 
We've named it an aileron. Ah, uh, you know what? You know, uh, 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 Glenn Curtis. We've had this discussion, and and you know, I pondered more about it, and I, you 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 are half right, if I may, without the W, in mm. that the 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 main difference between what the rights were claiming and what what um, the Curtis Group had actually developed was the, not so much ailerons as wing flaps, just renaming them, but they actually had a method of warping the wing to change the shape of the wing to move uh, airflow over it differently, which was actually, which mm. actually is fundamentally different than just a flap that moves, moves up and down in a hinge. It actually, it actually contorted the entire shape of the wing to modify airflow. Mm. And those, that, that as I recall, having looked back at it was the main fight was, is in fact mm. wing warping the same thing as a flap. Um, I think people can have a lot of arguments either way. In one, you've got a rigid body with something that moves against it, and another, you move the entire surface. And I think that subtlety was part of why that battle went on for so long. Mm. So it, it is it is a nuanced fight over intellectual property, to be sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, I mean, yes and no, but I mean, it really, <laughs> what, what it should have been is um, uh, they had part patent rights um like if you take something like you, people argue with me why did you patent the wheel and um, my comment is usually well actually if i look at the wheels on my lamborghini downstairs they have patents on them <laughs> uh, which is why lamborghini gets to charge me horrendously huge prices <laughs> that's a lamborghini wheel well, exactly uh, because <clears throat> well yeah, anyway um but the whole point is you can have a additional innovation on the original yeah oh yeah of course you know mm. for sure as long as you as long as you cite prior art yeah no doubt um ha huh. so sort of to bring it a bring it a bit full circle you know is there do we currently yet have mechanisms in our the way our our economic system is is, is organized to differentially reward true value-added creation innovation versus copycatting? Or is it just one of the symptoms of any economic system that, and sometimes you just cannot differentiate, right? That, you know, if I invented a trading a, tra a trading process that helps me arbitrage wheat markets better, if someone else kind of reverse engineers what I've done by looking at my trading patterns, mm. is well, that's their value-added worse than mine? Mm. That won't be covered, though. You can't really patent that. Right. Um, the processes are notoriously difficult to patent for a very good reason. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but more, it's more a philosophical question, right? Is there, and and I ask it in, in, in because I'm preoccupied in a sense with the massive social disharmony that we are experiencing, which may be no different than it always been has been throughout history, but we just get it echo chambered at us rapidly because of social media mm. um i think a lot of that comes back to people's different concepts of what an economy is for mm. right pure materialists who believe there is no higher good and no higher purpose and no mm. deity overlooking us well there is no greater thing to worry about than who gets what bit of which which, which pie whereas mm. those who come from more religious tr tradition believe that there are rules and guidelines that have been set up by a presumably smarter arguably omniscient <laughs> creator who has given us stupid apes 
a set of guidelines for how we might hmm. get along better together. Yeah. And I, well, I think a lot I mean, of those fights are because of that. But even some of the other ones, I mean, if we take uh, one of the, the main proponents of all of this uh, sort of modern change and even beginning of wokeness now, although he probably wouldn't like it, um, say John Rawls. Now, if you start thinking through what it means to have this radical idea of fairness, uh, what if I now, uh, I, I have everything start the same, but I've developed and I have wealth, uh, which is, it, is okay according to a Rawlsian system because we all started equally fair and that guy spent his and I, I saved mine. But what, I can't use it on educating my children? Hmm. I mean, this is the problem people don't think through. Um, you, you say, oh, but it's got to be a level playing field. But what if my level playing field is I don't go on the holiday, I put my children into a better university. Right. right. Isn't that my choice? But you go, oh, but then it's not fair because they have. But really? How do you draw that line? How do we start? It's, it's, it's a hard one. It's why, you know, the only, from my point of view, obviously, the only rational perspective is that you, you know, provide everyone the exact same set of rules and they do with them what they want. I mean, it came up here in the States. Your education example is perfect, right? The Democrats decided they were going to buy votes by giving a trillion dollars to pay off student loans that were willingly incurred. Um, mm. And one dad, great video. The day it was announced, Elizabeth Warren, who's a you know left-wing nutbag senator from Massachusetts, who's a proponent of this, was uh, at a, a, a political event, and a father, one of her constituents, showed up and was on was being recorded saying to her, "You know, I scrimped and saved my, and I didn't buy new cars, and we didn't go on vacation. I paid for my my kids' education. Do I get a check?" And Elizabeth, insanely enough, is like laughing, like, oh, no, of course not. He's like, what's funny about that? My neighbor, who works the exact same job I did, didn't take on double shifts, bought a new car, took his family on vacation, his daughter took out college loans, and now you're giving her 20 grand. Yeah. Why? Why? Mm. How does that make any sense to anybody? Um, and, you know, it was just, it was one of those great examples of, I had the very conversation in D.C. that week with some um, folks more on the Democrat side who were going on and on about, you know, well, we gave away these loans to these groups and this and this. I said, I'm like, 48 wrongs don't make a right. Like, mm. what's your justification for this? Never mind the fact that universities in America don't pay taxes on their endowments. They're jacking prices up every year. Like, why is the American taxpayer, 68% of whom don't go to college, paying for this? They had no particularly good answer for that, obviously. Um, but, you know. Because we want to get everyone to go to college, because if everyone does their degree, I mean, so what we end up doing is um, devaluing the nature of a bachelor degree, but then also still differentiating. So <laughs> yeah. if you go to the right school, uh, right. it's worth more money. And if you go and do the right degree, so now we have a comparison like a Bachelor of Commerce to get into accounting, which um, is respectable, versus a Bachelor of Business, which levels. They're determined by country, by culture, right? And, and in America, at least, the very reason 
this preoccupation with college began was, let's go right back to governmental distortions. Courts ruled that employers were not allowed to give competency or uh, you know knowledge tests to potential employees, right? And mm. you'll go, you'll if you paid any attention to American history, you'll realize why. Because somehow, daring to ask someone who wants to come work for you if they are in fact qualified to work for mm. you is racist or otherwise discriminatory. So. Mm. Companies were banned from giving tests, so they went to the next proxy, which was, do you have a high school diploma, which used to mean something mm -hmm. in America. And then when that, when everyone got one of those because of great inflation, it went to, as you say, college. Mm -hmm. And then it became which college? So I think the bigger point, which I think would be broadly helpful for everyone to understand is human nature, much like a river, is always going to find its way around rocks. So the more we kind of stay in line with how people are going to act in the first place, probably the less friction we're going to get. Do you think that's a mm. proposition that has a remote chance of ever getting political acceptance? No. I mean, are we going to go back to um, the sort of bipartisan reporting on media and get rid of the social media um, segregation of what you see into camps, then maybe, but uh, we'd have to roll back all the changes Nixon made and then um, the other ones made by the later Republicans, um, ironically, to because they thought they'd make media fairer. Yeah, yeah, idiots. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the heavy-handed government. So <laughs> we could chat for a long time about morality and economics. L last thoughts, one of the kind of biggest things that, you know, especially you've taken from looking at, you know, patent wars and arrested, but in relation to especially the recent studies you've done on how, you know, mm -hmm. Luther and Aquinas. It, a lot of it should thought. be down to, a lot of it should go down to um, keeping a fair rule set um, and also trying to ensure people understand the rules. So one of the problems that I have with this concept of democratizing finance, which actually goes back over 100 years, by the way, um, it was one of the catch cries uh, before 1929, uh, where everyone wanted to open up finance because before the, the 1920s, it was difficult to buy into the share market. Mm. Um, and after the 1920s, of course, the government opened up a lot of the share trading um, and um, we know what happened, don't we? Uh, but having people sort of gain financial knowledge, education, etc., is a good thing. And trying to get people to uh, understand the risk before they trade would be a good thing. Can't force them, but at least um, have some warnings there. Yeah. Like, like cigarette packets. If you buy into this, you may be financially broke. Right. Could happen, right? You can, you, your <laughs> chances of, of financial cancer are high if you buy this nonsense. Mm -hmm. uh, well, with that, I'm going to let people ponder that. Craig, mm -hmm. thanks for taking the time again. Um, and it's a weekend coming up, and I, as ever, admonish my listeners to save themselves mm -hmm. the brain pain and turn off the mainstream media who are lying to them and to tune into Messy Times. <laughs> mm. Take care. Learn what Bitcoin is, how it works, and why it matters. Bitcoin 101, your ultimate guide to the fundamentals of blockchain.